The work walks its talk, I wrote, modeling multi-anti-disciplinary inspiration with gleeful citations of Harry Potter and Plato alike, equal parts interrogatories and declaratives. Every chapter allows room for more, a delicious anticipation that, as Tolkien put it, still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I wrote that passage to my guests, curiosity connoisseurs, Perry Zern and Danny Bassett, some years ago when they shared with me an even then already robust draft of their book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. MIT Press quite appropriately touts the 2022 book as an exhilarating, genre-bending exploration of curiosity's powerful capacity to connect ideas and people. Curiosity, say the two, is a practice of connection. It connects ideas into networks of knowledge and the knowers, both to the knowledge they seek and most importantly, to each other. We know this intuitively, but they've put the frame to it. Curiosity is so much more than a single move or one perfect question. The line that makes curiosity what it is, as they say, is a wandering track. Perry Zern and Danny Bassett share more than a passion for curiosity. They are twins, academics both, each possessed of a gleeful erudition that inevitably sends me in a million delightful directions. Perry Zern is a professor of philosophy at American University. He's the author of Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Danny S. Bassett is J. Peter Skirkanich Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. They are the author of more than 300 scientific research articles in neuroscience, physics, network science, and complex systems science. Perry and Danny believe, as they put it, in the promise of curiosity. In Curious Minds, they embody the collaborative, relational, dynamic model of curiosity they espouse. It's a wickedly smart, widely referenced, and wonderfully playful romp. Loyal listeners will recognize them both as previous and much-beloved guests here on Choose to be Curious. It's hard to describe just how excited I am about this conversation, so for so many reasons, but not least because they've managed to get at something I've been nibbling around low these many years to move beyond fussing about defining curiosity and focus instead on what they call the energy of the edge. Perry, Danny, it's so good to have you both back and congratulations on the book. Thanks, delighted to be here. Yes, thank you. So I was revisiting our previous conversations last night and came upon my analogy with you, Perry, from almost exactly four years ago, I pulled zipper from the big jar of wannabe analogies. And this is what I said. Curiosity is like a zipper because it's a tool, an instrument for bringing things together, for bringing two sides of something and knitting them together 
into something that holds. I felt very moved by this theme that runs through our conversation over the years. And that made me think of something one of you wrote. The more we focus on curiosity, the more diffuse our ignorance becomes, just as the more our curiosity wanders, the more likely we are to find a through line. So we've all been thinking about curiosity a lot over these many years. And I'm wondering, Perry, what's your through line? Well, <laughs> first of all, as an incredible pull to, to, to the, your analogy to the zipper and curiosity, I think that we could play with that even further. I know one of the things that we've done in the book is to really think about curiosity as this practice of connection, but then we end up uh, closing the book with a sort of unexpected for us chapter on cracks and what yes. it, how the importance of as we are curious in our lives and in our work and in our relationships, not only being able to pull things into connection, but sometimes to disconnect things that no longer perhaps serve us or represent where it is that we want to go and what it is that we want to know. So the zipper is both both zipping up and zipping down perhaps is, yeah, is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is helpful in that respect. As far as the through line of these of the the curiosity work, I mean part of it is just the curiosity is is so rich of a topic. And the longer I've stayed with it, the more I've wanted to talk to other people in other fields and other disciplines and other walks of life, because I always learn something different. And the capacity to collaborate with Danny has been just special beyond belief for all sorts of reasons. Maybe Danny will <laughs> also weigh in on. But bringing together philosophy and network neuroscience in this particular text both was the most natural thing for us to do and also surprised us every step of the way. So... Yeah. 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 I mean, I would just want to echo that last part of, of how writing the book together was an experience that's different than than anything else and, mm -hmm. and, and really special in a way that I think touches on your zipper analogy in an interesting way. So I think one of the highlights for me of, of writing this book with Perry was that I think we realized that we shared a new common language. So, I mean, we're twins, so we've had common languages since we were, you know, toddlers. But how special to have one in adulthood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think as you go from being children up through being a child, an adolescent, and then, and then a young adult, I think that We've learned that we share different languages as we mm -hmm. grow, and but we had never had sort of an intellectual language that we shared, and that's what came through, I think, in the writing of this book. But maybe the other thing that came through as we were writing is that we recognized that very quickly the language we used that kind of evinces the sort of curiosity that we're talking about is something that we ended up just kind of breathing together for five years. Mm. Um, and so by the end of writing the book, the passages that I would be writing in the final revision sounded a lot like something that Perry would have written. <laughs> and the passages that Perry wrote <laughs> sounded a lot like something I would have written. Um, so somehow we kind of zippered our languages together over the course of the writing in a way that I think was really magical. You know, as a reader, yes, I think that's exactly true. I mean, you warn people that, oh, you know, we have different voices. And, you know, we took turns writing these chapters, but you're reading it, and you're going, yeah, I'm not, I'm really not feeling much of a jar from one chapter to another. I think I said this to you, they, they, they weave together in all sorts of ways. And you do, you know, Perry's all about like all these dynamics and systems and, and Danny's all about the illusions. And so you're busting categories 
from the start as you're building this language too. It's really lovely. And a relief. I know our editor and publisher were both worried. <laughs> Can you bring your voices together? Uh -huh. Turns out it was, in a sense, effortless. Oh, nice, nice. So let's back up a minute and recap sort of the foundation of this, which is built around this kind of network paradigm of curiosity. It's really at the heart of your work and kind of explains the energy of the edge. And Danny, talk to me about curiosity as edge work. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think historically, curiosity has been thought of very much as a process or something that we engage in to acquire bits of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of imagine this in your mind as, you know, we're going through the world, we're picking up pieces of knowledge like seashells on, on the seashore, and we're stashing them away in a coin purse or something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the interesting challenges to that idea is that then what do you do with a collection? of things. Well, you can look at it, you can admire it, but what do you do with it? What can, what can it functionally do? And I think what's exciting about this connectional view of curiosity is instead that we are taking one idea and we're connecting it to another one and connecting it to another one and building huge knowledge structures in our mind that can do something. They have sort of transformative potential, both for ourselves and in, in how we think and how we might think differently in the future, sort of reshaping how we imagine the world, but also transformative kind of outside of ourselves as we connect mm -hmm. to other individuals and throughout society. Yeah, historically, philosophically, right, there's a, folks continually define curiosity as this uh, capacity to grasp information. And when we redefine it as this practice of connection, one of the things we're interested in is how connecting ideas and people to one another crafts this kind of knowledge space that we share but also we kind of can second guess or can transform or can undo together as well so it it emphasizes less what each of us might own as far as pieces of knowledge and more what all of us might be doing with what we know and share and what's interesting to me about that is the implications that has for things like learning where when you can connect your learning to something with these sorts of networks, it's stickier, right? You can hold on to it. There's like Velcro. There's hooks and loops and things that you can connect to. But it also seems like it has specific implications in, in sort of the way, and you talk about this, the style of curiosity and how people work those edges or what kinds of networks they build. And I know we've talked a little bit about this, Perry, in terms of these styles of curiosity, these styles of information linking. You want to recap those for people who are less steeped in it than we are? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was trying to think about curiosity as a practice rather than trying to define curiosity as any particular essence. And when I think about curiosity as a practice, I wanted to think, okay, well, how does one practice it? And I went back because I'm trained as a historian of philosophy in particular, as well as a political philosopher. I went back through the history of intellectual thought. And one of the things that I saw was certain a number of styles of practicing curiosity that seemed remarkably relevant to today. The three that I pulled out were the busybody, which collects is somebody who collects stories, but just really likes to know what everybody else is up to and what everybody else is thinking. They just their 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 curiosities will widen it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the hunter who really likes to focus in, likes to know a lot about about something small, and just becomes an expert in that one area. 
And then the third uh, style is the dancer, is somebody who's much more likely to be creative, imaginative, innovative about, with their curiosity and kind of bring together things, uh, two things or two or more things that other people just wouldn't have brought together just to see sort of what, what happens next if I think about it this way or if I think about it that way. So we play a lot with these uh, three styles throughout the book, and we invite readers to think about themselves as any one of these. But uh, we also end up finishing the book with a with an appendix where we dive into eighteen different creatures, okay? <laughs> animals, <love> <laughs> insects, etc. Um, and just to think, okay, I'm sure there's more than three. We're sure there's more than three. What would it look like if we turn to the natural world, not to the history of you know intellectual thought and curiosity, but turn to the natural world and say? What what do curious activities and movements actually look like there? Yeah, um, and just sort of blows everything open for us at the end. <laughs> You're listening to Choose to Be Curious: Conversations about Curiosity and Work and Life. I'm your host Lynn Gorton, and I'm joined today by Perry Zern and Danny Bassett, twins, professors of philosophy and bioengineering, respectively, and authors of Curious Minds. I want to take a moment and actually sort of dive into three practices that I think are threaded through the book that for me resonated, you know, things that I kind of maybe I look for. And there's sketching, walking, and equity. Let's take sketching first, because you actually talk about that right up maybe in your introduction, explaining these beautiful illustrations, so great illustrations. Talk to me about sketching in this context. Yeah, so we definitely wanted to bring to the book the different languages that curiosity yeah. can evince in each of us. And that can come through words as we communicate with one another in words, but it also can come through in the visual arts. And so we really wanted to make sure that the book had these different voices throughout it. So the book has frontispieces from Puna Mystery, who's an artist in the UK who uh, took all of our images. We actually created a visual portfolio that was about 350 pages long, oh um, which had, you know, a sentence from the book and an image to go with it and a sentence from the book and an image to go with it. Um, and we handed that over to her and said, you know, do something magical. She and made she did. sense of it. Yes. Um, and so we're really, really uh, lucky to have her involved in the project. And those pieces that she created are, you know, just gorgeously crafted, took a long time, very, you know, she has expertise in <laughs> as an artist. And then they're contrasted with sketches that I made, mm -hmm. particularly in the scientific chapters, to uh, illustrate some of the ideas that we were trying to show through the words. And the reason that we used the sketches was that very often that's how scientists communicate with one another. So we take a pen or pencil usually in our bag and, you know, write on a napkin at a coffee shop or at a pub or wherever we happen to be to to show what it is we're trying to say to another person. And I think, you know, what we're hoping is that, that those sketches make the book feel like we're there with the reader showing and, and, and engaging in this very sort of sh short temporal period to kind of dash off an idea mm -hmm. to communicate with somebody else. Mm -hmm. I did a show on urban sketching. And so I've been thinking a lot about sketching as a way, as a curiosity practice in and of itself. And only just in thinking about this conversation really sort of understood that in sketching, the lines only make sense in relationship to one another. And so it's this wonderful example of exactly what you're talking about. 
Yeah, and in some sense, it also shows the connection between the mind inside of you and the external yes. world. Because yes, yes. sometimes while you're sketching, you recognize that the way that you drew it tells your brain something that you really didn't quite know. So you almost learn from drawing. Right. Um, there, there's a long history of this idea, you know, that goes back to the medieval period of that when one draws diagrams, it can actually be kind of an embodied method of cognizing in a new way, um, so you can learn from what you draw. So the other, another theme that came up was walking. Yeah, there's a really, really long history of thinking about walking as a, as a curiosity practice, as a way in which we explore our world. And uh, by walking, I want to be quick to quick to remark that one might walk with one's legs, with uh, with a wheelchair, with other um, sort of mobility devices of all kinds. But but walking, traversing in some sense our world is is something that not only lets us, helps us learn new things, but uh, is typically assumed to sort of open the mind to thinking thoughts that we didn't, we weren't able to think before. So one of the things that we do is we dive into that long history of, the, of curiosity at, or walking as a curiosity practice, um, but we're specifically interested in it because it correlates to language used in, in network science of walking uh, in the mind, really. Walking yeah. between concepts, walking between words. And how is it that we link the words that we hear, the concepts that we uh, know, the relationships that we gather? How do we link those together? Those are all described in a sense as walks on a mental map. So we really wanted to play with walking in that sense as something that happens in our in our minds and through our, and through our ideas as well as through our bodies and through the interplay between them. We didn't want to easily settle the question of whether we do our walking just in our mind or just in our body or you know all of these at once. Well, you know, I keep thinking of all the people who have said to me, "I think differently when I walk," mm-hmm. and, and so. To me, that argues that there is no separation or distinction, mind and body, in the walking, that they are integrated, fluid. I mean, what are all the different ways that we might talk about that? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's really the point of the curiosity takes a walk chapter. Is yeah. That, is in fact that they are intimately connected, and one the way the sorts of walks one takes define how it is that one comes to think. If you're very you know you're rushing to the grocery store to get whatever it is that you need you're thinking a particular way. You know, what's happening in your brain will be very focused in some sense and perhaps frazzled. Um, whereas if you're meandering with someone you've just sort of recently come to an affinity with, what it is you're able to think with that person really matches the the breadth of, of leeway you have in your own uh, negotiation of space. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about what you bring with you on the walk. So whether it's a friend or mm. whether it's the sort of things that you wear, for example, mm-hmm. or you put in your backpack I know there's this wonderful fact about Simone de Beauvoir. Um, When she would walk the mountains in France, she would bring a backpack that had red wine Mm -hmm. in it to drink (laughs) um, and then, you know, tall, uh, strappy sandals. Mm -hmm. And that's what she hiked from, like, the sunrise to sunset with. And I'm thinking, you know, what are the sorts of mind wanderings that are possible when you go out not wearing she didn't want to wear what everybody else was wearing you know but wearing whatever it is that you bring to the world whatever the diverse spaces are that you bring with you how can that change what you think as you go Mm. I have to rethink what I'm carrying with me when I walk (laughs) I have to rethink this so the third thread that shows up over and over and it's something I've been thinking a lot about is the question of equity and 
where how where and how that shows up in this i think that one of the ways in which it shows up is that curiosity in an individual's mind can come out in in many diverse ways and it's important to value those diverse ways of of being curious and that the more that we can push back against the sort of single definition of curiosity, which is what you sort of started with, the more we can value the the different kinds of curiosity in one another. And that becomes very relevant for social change and also for education. Yeah. When you start to think about curiosity as this practice of building knowledge networks, which also is a practice of building social networks, right? You can't, you can't build knowledge networks alone. <laughs> Then you get to ask questions like, okay, how are we building knowledge? What knowledges are we excluding? What ways of knowing are we excluding? What histories? What voices? You get to really think about the process of building. Again, and that's different than if you think about curiosity as simply the capacity to acquire knowledge. Then then you just wonder, well, what have you acquired, right? Mm-hmm. And what will you do with it? It doesn't lead you to these more social and relational questions. So for us, one of the things that we pull out especially toward the end in the, in the chapter on education, is thinking about equity in the space of learning. And one of the things that we focus on there is neuroatypical sort of learning styles, learning differences, um, psychiatric disabilities, these sorts of things. When you come to a knowledge space and the way you link information is different, significantly different than the way your, your uh, classmates might or the way your professor might, that matters in the space of education. That matters for equity, for your capacity to participate as a full full person and learner in that space. And so the more, the more we can appreciate this sense of curiosity as this network building, both in the mind and between and among peoples, the more I think we can be accountable to those differences that end up getting covered over when we have a single definition or description of curiosity, that it just always looks like this or it always functions like this. That when when we when we approach things that way, we'll we'll miss so much of the the richness and the confusion really <laughs> of how curiosity shows up. Uh, well, so maybe that's the perfect way to to kind of come into this cracking because here you spend a whole book talking about building the connections and the links and everything, and then you close with wanting to break it all up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that what's interesting and important about the connective way of thinking about curiosity is that as you add more and more connections and link more and more pieces together, you may end up building a structure that's relatively rigid, yeah. right? Yeah. So perhaps what we actually want is uh, something, you know, a frame in our minds that is more that is more flexible, that can kind of move in the wind. There are these wonderful sculptures that um, uh, beasts uh, constructed out of pieces of wood and the wind blows on them in a particular way that they can walk across the beach, right? The only reason that that works is because there are many connections that don't exist. That allows for the movement and for the flexibility. So we know that this is true in mechanical systems, but what we tried to do in the book is to demonstrate that that's also what's true in the mind and that for the mind to be able to move and to be flexible and to change and to respond to the winds of our environment, um, we need to be able to to have some connections not there or to be able to break some to allow a particular movement to occur. And I think that that becomes important when we think about the narratives that we have inherited about ourselves or about our world from society, from cultures, from our upbringing, and when we think, you know, maybe it's time to 
break a little bit of that, mm-hmm. reshape the narratives that we have been um, raised with. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, especially powerful for us. Uh, we had a very conservative upbringing and there's a, there's a lot of things that we weren't able to, we didn't feel the freedom to think or to explore growing up. But I remember when I first uh, discovered philosophy, one of the things that I loved was learning about Socrates. And all that Socrates would want to do is sort of leave us with more questions than we started. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 and I had this sense of him just cracking open all the things that people think they know and just leaving you hanging there <laughs> with, you know, with no foot uh, to stand on. And I think, you know, when I hear about conversations about curiosity in which people are saying, well, curiosity is just, you know, information gathering or filling in the gaps that you have. I I think curiosity is like gaining gaps. It's Uh, growing gaps, too. Uh, And so I think we wanted to, in our connectional theory of curiosity, we wanted to hold on to that really important practice uh, capacity to disconnect as one grows one's knowledge networks. So I find myself thinking of something that I was taught as a young child speaking of upbringing. Both of my grandmothers were very gifted knitters, and something I learned early on is if you knit, you rip. And and now I sort of feel like if you build curiosity networks, then you break curiosity networks, and that it's part of the process as opposed to being an undoing or a problem in the process. It's baked into the process. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have my big jar of wannabe analogies here, and I want to have you all do some analogies. So reach in. You know how this works. Take a slip. We're each going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on here. We're going to have to be really quick because holy cow. Okay. Body surfing. How is curiosity <laughs> like body surfing? It shows my limits. I don't actually know what body surfing is, but um, I let's say it brings two things into contact that <laughs> might not typically be in contact and the force and the frictions of the two together allow some joy to occur. Uh, my husband's a big body surfer. I think he would agree. Okay. okay. <laughs> Danny, what do you have? I have a snow plow. Mm. So curiosity is like a snow plow because it um, opens up spaces to walk nice. um, and that it allows for us to engage with the world and, and leave on new trajectories that we wouldn't have otherwise. Oh, very nice. And I have stubbed toe. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say that curiosity is like a stubbed toe because it stops you in your kind of blind, automated movement and demands your attention. And audience, ooh, one for you, one for you. Uh, oh, How is curiosity like tears? Let me know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. So Danny, Perry, thank you so much for this. Thank you. We are so excited to be here, really. Yes, thank you so much. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton, your host. Thanks for joining us today. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at Choose to be Curious. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your tears analogy, hashtag analogy. Huge thanks to my guests, Perry Zern and Danny Bassett. I can hardly wait to see what they do next. Links to all their remarkable work on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Charcoal Lines by Sketchbook via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs>